so we're going to carry on with our series. If, you're, if it's your first Sunday with us, um, you have kind of landed in the middle of a, a series. We've been looking at Genesis 1, all of the things that we've been talked about. And uh, specifically over the last sort of few weeks, we've been looking at um, what that means in terms of relationships. So particularly, we're, we're going to be unpacking marriage, sexuality, singleness. And we've, we've intentionally been um, going really slow. And we've been, we've been preparing the ground really carefully. And, um, and so if, to kind of try and, if we can, bring it up to be one of the things we've kind of, we're holding as a very high value and something we want to keep very front and centre is that um, we need to make sure that our posture is right, not just our position. So what I mean by that is, you know, we can, we can end up feeling like I've got to have a, what's the, what's the theological answer? Like what is our church position on these things? And, and what does the Bible say? And, and, and that stuff is important, but I'm concerned that actually sometimes in the church, big church, we're, we're so... Um, we're so concerned that we have the right position that actually our posture is nothing like Jesus. Um, and so, you know, actually one of the things we said is, honestly, arguably, maybe our posture is even more important. Um, and actually our posture can be set even in our position. We're like, I don't know, I have some questions, I'm not sure. Um, but I, this, is, this is the thing. Our position and our posture both need to be big, biblically informed. Both need to be absolutely infused with the love and mercy and grace of Jesus. Because if people bump into you and I and they bump into just a theological position... I'm not convinced anyone is going to be much better for it. I don't think people want to bump into me and meet me or my, my theology or my doctrine. I want people to bump into me and bump into Jesus. So that means I have to have my posture right, even before my position. Is that okay? So we've intentionally been going really slow. Um, but we do want to start talking about, okay, what, what would be our position? Um, and and how, would, how do we find our way there? And acknowledging, listen, I'm not here telling you what to think, um, but kind of sort of pull us into this conversation. Okay, what does the Bible say? What does that mean? And how then should we live? Um, acknowledging we're talking to ourselves first and foremost, right? How do I live? Um, so we're going to kind of we're going to look back to Genesis um, and and see kind of really what I, initially I was thinking. Okay, this week I want to look at the Genesis story and, and um, two big questions: what is marriage, what is sex? And then I decided those were two impossibly big and broad questions. So I've kind of fine-tuned it a little bit, um, but that's kind of where we're heading. Because the thing we need to acknowledge is this: every single person on the planet, regardless of whatever faith or none, I think everybody actually has has an aspect on their view of sex and relationships which there's a moral part to it. Right? Everyone does actually have. A moral view on these things. There are certain things that everybody would say, no, that's not okay. Um, so the question for us as believers is, well, how, how, who gets to set that standard? If there is a standard, and not everyone agrees where it is, how do we determine where that is? Who gets to decide that? And if you weren't here last week, Mark did a brilliant job at kind of unpacking the times, like culturally where we're at um, that in a sort of postmodern, post-Christian culture, essentially we've landed in this place where you know the sort of the big headlines are that actually there's no external source of truth. I get to self-determine and decide, and I am my own final authority. Like that that would kind of be the culture of our times. And so if anyone come, you know, if someone comes and says something that challenges that or would disagree with that, then they're you know then they hate me, and that's you know that's offensive and, and unreasonable. But actually, for believers, that, that's not it, right? God is the final authority. Jesus is the truth. He gets to speak who I am and how I should live if I've committed to following him. And like, you know, Phil closed that worship. And the thing is, actually, the words that he speaks, even the ones that are challenging and costly, actually, they bring life and freedom because he's good, right? So we have to have those things foundationally um, in place. So we're going to be in Genesis 2 this morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Um, and then we're going to dive in. So this is from verse 18. So the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sea. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. 
So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. So she will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So essentially, if we're summing up this story, this is the kind of the first marriage relationship that we see in the Bible. And, and it starts off with kind of God's statement that actually it's not good for man to be alone. And, he, and he's looking around and Adam's naming all of the animals and, and there's, there's no one, nothing suitable as a suitable helper. I'm going to look at that phrase amongst the animals. So God creates from Adam, he creates Eve. She is created in the first marriage relationship, first sexual relationship is established. Now there's a couple of things which I've said before, but I'm, we're going to keep saying the same thing just to make sure that we've all heard it. Marriage is a way for us to not be alone. But if, if we hear this narrative, if you're here as a single person, you hear this narrative, it's not good for me to be alone. So God created marriage for Adam and Eve. I'm not married, therefore I'm alone. Right? I, I don't think that's the case. In marriage, romantic, sexual love is not essential for human flourishing. Like we have to get, and you know, I think in the church we don't always believe that, in the world we don't believe that, but that is absolutely true. So marriage is, is a way, but not the only way, not the ultimate way for us not to be alone. So we've got to be really careful we have that in place. Otherwise, we'll hear this story and say, well, if you're single, you're lonely. And that's not it. And we're going we're gonna, to, next week, we're going we're gonna to dive in and look at, um, at singleness and actually how do we flourish um, if, that, if that's where we're at. Um, so we have to get that in place because otherwise, if we hear um, the only way to not be alone is to be married then actually, if I'm single, that sounds awful. And then any of the things that we would see is, okay, well, God maybe has got some restrictions, some boundaries in place for marriage and sex and relationships. Well, those feel intolerable. That feels completely unfair if I'm single and the only way for me to be known, to be loved, to know intimacy is in a marriage relationship, okay? So we, like, we've got to work really, really hard. Actually, if we're married or single, to kick against that, um, so we're going to look at two questions. And like I said, I started super broad and then thought there was absolutely no way we can do that on a Sunday morning. So we're going to look at two questions. And listen, with all these things that we're looking at, I, I'm really acknowledging what we can get through and cover and unpack on a Sunday morning is finite, really quite finite, quite limited. Um, and so I want to encourage you that this is, this is a start off of a kind of a family conversation and, and actually there's stuff that you're going to need to dive into and stuff maybe to read and to listen to and we're going to, I'm going to suggest some sort of good spaces and, and some good stuff to listen to, some good things to read. So please, this is, there's a lot to get through and I'm going to go quite fast but acknowledging this is not the fullness of everything. Is that all right? So here are two questions um, that I want us to look at this morning. Firstly, is sex difference required for marriage? Secondly, is marriage required for sexual intimacy? That make sense? So if, okay, so because I think those are two pretty critical questions where actually what the church would traditionally have taught and what culture would say are actually massively bumping it, like they were at complete opposites, total loggerheads. So we're going to look specifically at those two things. Is that all right? So first one, let's jump in. Is sex difference required for marriage? So legally and culturally, no. In this country, um, 
Same-sex marriage was legalised, um, and, and now there's the, the Equality of Marriage Act, so men can marry men, women can marry women. So legally and culturally, the answer to that question is no. Sex difference is not required for a marriage relationship. Okay? Traditionally, the church would say, and at the moment, the Church of England is trying to figure out what their position is, and, but right now, they would still say that. Um, so we've got to figure out, okay, well, is, where do we, where's our position? Okay. So I want to look at this phrase, suitable helper. That's what we're going to jump into because this is really what was going on in this Genesis account, right? It's not good for him to be alone and God was wanting to kind of ordain marriage. Um, and so there's this phrase that couldn't find a suitable helper so Eve was created. And I've, you know, I've, for years I was a bit kind of offended by the idea of helper because that feels like as a woman, I'm like, that feels a little bit condescending and patronising. Adam needed a little helper. Um, but actually, do you know what? It really isn't because the word that is used there is easer. Okay? It's the same word that's used to describe military help, and it's the word that is most often used to describe God's intervention on behalf of Israel. So it's not little patronising in any sort of way, okay? but it's that kind of help to kind of get involved and come alongside. The other word we've got to figure out is suitable. So here's the question. What made Eve a suitable helper? Right? Now, in part, is that she was human, right? Because it implies that in the story, because it says, actually, looked around all the animals, no suitable helper was found, therefore Eve was created. Okay? So the word that's, in part, is it's about humanity, but I think it's more than that. And I think we've got to try and dig in a little bit to the original language, if you'll bear with me. Uh, so the word that is used for suitable is konegdo. The difficult thing about this word is it's the only time it's used in the Bible. So often when there's words, you know, scholars will look at, well, where else is it used to try and kind of figure out the full meaning of it? This is the only time this is word is used in the Bible. And it's, a, it's one word that's made up of two words, and it's not super easy to translate. I am not a Hebrew scholar, so this is all what I've figured out um, through reading and other people's study. Um, but I actually found it really helpful. So it's made up of two words, okay? K. K-E, which means as or like, and then neged is the root of the second part of the word, which means opposite, against, or in front of. So if you put those two words together, this suitable helper, it means something like as opposite him, or like against him. Does that make sense? So I think if what made Eve suitable... As a, as a partner, as a helper for Adam, was just her humanity, you'd actually only need the first part of that word, right? Because it would be someone like Adam. So you don't need the ke bit of it. Does that make sense? The fact that there's the use of this other word, neged, which means the opposite, implies actually it wasn't just a human, it needed to be a different sort of human, right? So not just like, in that it was human and not animal, but also different in that Eve was female and not male which I, I think begins to build this picture of actually what God planned was marriage being between a man and a woman. And so, let's roll it on. The next question would rightly be, you know, people who would take an affirming view of saying, no, I think God can bless same-sex relationships. And the argument would be this. And listen, I want us to actually pay attention to and actually think about arguments. You know, and, and we're going to find ourselves in different positions on these things. It's not good enough just to kind of say, well, this is what I've been told and this is what I believe and I've not even considered why and considered how other people might land somewhere different. So the, you know, the question would be, well, okay, this first relationship with a sexual relationship was a man and a woman, um, but does every other one have to be? The first one was, but does that mean everyone's have to be and forever? Now, if you look through the Bible, actually the only context for marriage, the only marriage to talk about is always male-female. Um, but actually a more affirming view would say, actually the suitability was just, it's another human. 
not because she was female. Actually, it was just that she was human. I, I can understand that in part, but I, I, I can't find a biblical place to kind of land that. And I think verse 24 is quite important um, for this. Let me read it to you. Um, so it's, it's kind of where the story shifts a little bit. So from, going to, from talking about this is what happened for Adam and Eve, it, it, then I think it points forward. So it describes the process of Eve being made. And then verse 24 says this, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So it shifts gear. I, I, think, it's, I think it moves from a description of Adam and Eve and their marriage relationship. I think that is a statement, a future forward statement for saying, actually, listen, this is, that is why a man will, another man and any other man would leave his family, be united to his wife and set up a new family becoming one flesh with his wife. So I, I, think that, I think that moves it into a not just this is what Adam and Eve's experience was, but actually that that would be God's intention as a forward and eternal position, I think. Um, and I think you know, the other thing that is worth acknowledging is that you know, part of the creation mandate, which we've looked at in quite a lot of detail before Christmas, um, was actually to be fruitful and multiply and, and, and have children. So actually, the, you know, part of, and again, acknowledging that actually there's a, there's a spiritual context to that as well. It's not just get married and have children. Um, but part of that actually does require a male-female relationship to fulfill that part of um, God's creation mandate. Let's look at um, what Jesus said. Um, because interestingly, Jesus kind of pulled on this story from Genesis. Um, and it's a different context. It's in Matthew 19. Um, and essentially, um, people coming to him, and in, where things had kind of got to culturally was that in a very patriarchal society, um, you know, some Jewish leaders had come to the point where actually if you'd kind of had enough of your wife, you just had to say, I divorced you three times, and she was divorced for pretty, pretty much any reason. There were other schools of Jewish thought that said, no, it was only for adultery. You couldn't actually. But... But some people are actually, you can divorce your wife for you know, pretty flippant and, and non-existent reasons. And so they're kind of grilling Jesus on that, saying, can, can we do that, basically, is what they're saying. So the context is, is they're going after flippant divorce in that first century culture. Verse 4, and Jesus says this, haven't you, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he's exactly quoting Genesis there. And Jesus continues in verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We'd often have that phrase in part of a Christian marriage ceremony, wouldn't we? And so, and then, so they kick back and saying, well, all right, well, why does Moses' law say that we can divorce our wives? Um, and to kind of answer that, Jesus basically pulls them back to, to the beginning. He says, listen, the reason he did that was a concession to your hard hearts, but it wasn't that way from the beginnings, what Jesus says. In the beginning, it was not so. So in trying to understand like, the value of marriage and kick against this horrible, flippant use of divorce, Jesus pulls them back to say, listen, this is what God intended in the beginning. So he's addressing where they'd got to culturally and religiously um, about marriage and divorce, and he points back to God's original intention. Now, I think one thing it's worth noticing is that actually really, in terms of addressing the point and kind of answering their question of, can I basically divorce my wife for any reason as long as I say I divorced you three times? He really only needed to quote Genesis 2.24. For this reason, actually, a man leaves his wife and they become one flesh. And this phrase that he adds it, that actually, therefore, God has joined together, let no one separate. 
That would kind of answer the question, right? The reason you can't just divorce your wife is because you are actually now one flesh. You are joined by God and you can't then separate, right? That would answer the question. But what's interesting to me that actually he, yes, he quotes from Genesis 2.24, but he also intentionally pulls from Genesis 1 about God's creation where God created male and female, which isn't actually necessary to answer the question on divorce. That makes sense. So I, I wonder, for me, I'm like, I, it would seem to me that actually Jesus would see God's original plan in pulling them back to, hey, in the beginning it wasn't so. He would, I think, agree and would probably hold that position of actually marriage is because a male and a female, they are one flesh, they are fully joined, and so you can't just flip and re-separate because God has joined them together. But there is a context where actually Jesus would seem to, I think, agree and affirm, actually in God's design, marriage is male and female. Now the Bible does say other things about same-sex relationships, and they are they are all prescriptive. Like every, all the other places, there's not loads, and we're going to in a few weeks we're going to unpack those. And those are the those are the trickier verses almost in terms of what do we what do we do with them. But I, I want to start with Genesis and say, listen, if we can understand God, what was in God's heart, what was His original plan in creation, and start there, that was. So we are going to look at the other verses. Um, but I think, you know, my position, I know some of you have been going, Sarah, you're talking about posture, but what is the position? Uh, listen, I have thought and read and listened and prayed and agonised for hours and hours and hours. And my position would be, on my understanding of Genesis and Jesus' affirmation of that is that I think in God's design, your marriage is male and female. It doesn't change my posture towards people who's, whose experience is different, who choose differently, who lived it. It doesn't change my posture at all. But I would have a hard time arguing biblically that anything other than male and female marriage is what is in God's good plan for humanity. But we will look at the other few verses specifically on same-sex relationships in weeks coming up. So that's the first question. You hanging in there? All right, second question. Is marriage required for sex? Basically, do I have to be married before I can be sexually active? Culturally, they would say no. That is ridiculously old-fashioned, totally restrictive, and entirely unrealistic. Like, what are you thinking? Like, that would, like, that would be madness, right? Culturally, that's an absolute no. Now, but if you've maybe been brought up in the church, probably, traditionally, you've heard, those are the rules, don't have sex before you're married. Um, but I'm not sure we've always done a brilliant job at kind of explaining, well, why? Like, why is that? Certainly, I remember kind of growing up, kind of grew up in the church and... And just like, well, well, those are the rules. And then Phil and I met and got engaged. We're like, well, those are the rules. You just keep the rules. But if someone had really said, yeah, but why? Honestly, I'm not sure. I probably, well, just because that's the rules. That's because what I've been told. So I want to kind of dig in a little bit because I think it's going to be much more helpful if we can understand the why in terms of what is God's heart for marriage and sex, then actually it, I think we'll be much more successful and feel much lighter in actually walking in his right way other than, well, it's just the rules. Does that make sense? So here's the thing, the Bible doesn't explicitly say, you know, I cannot give you chapter and verse that says, thou shalt not have sex outside of marriage. It doesn't actually say it in those kind of words. Um, what the Bible is very clear on, through the Old and the New Testament, um, is that we need to have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Okay, so consistently it says, you know, flee sexual immorality, abstain from sexual immorality. It's, it's one of the few things that um, when Gentile people, non-Jewish people were becoming Christians and the early church was trying to figure out, well, do they have to keep the Jewish food laws? Do they have to be circumcised? Like, what, what do we do with all that? And they decided, no, they don't have to do that. But one of the things they definitely needed to do was, was not be involved with sexual immorality. 
The question is, what is sexual immorality? Because that definition has changed culturally and you know, around the world and through different times. Actually, what is moral or immoral, um, honestly, in lots of ways, is kind of up for grabs. So we've got to try and figure out, well, what, okay, well, what does the Bible say? Um, does, does fleeing sexual immorality include sexual activity outside of marriage, even in a really committed relationship where I really care about that person, right? So we've got, again, let's have a look at, you know, the world would say one thing, the church would traditionally say other, well, like, what is actually God saying, what's he calling us to? On one level, the world would say, all that's required for sex is consent. Over the age of 16, both consenting, on you go, whatever you want. Like, that, that would be the world's standard. I remember reading AM, it's a good few years ago now, but it was one of the freshers' mags for... Um, the, the Manchester University, and it's this terrible paragraph, and, and, and I, I can literally quote it because it struck me so much. It said, let's end this endless moralizing. Sleep with who you want, when you want, just make sure you use protection. And that was the kind of, here's the advice to all our 18, 19-year-old students coming to university. I remember just thinking, wow. You know, so, but that's, that's coming from this culture of, it's just consent. Consent and be safe, be responsible, and then whatever you want to do. Actually, you know, there's more research and kind of psychologists and sociologists. There is actually kind of pretty good research coming out. That actually, that's not super great for people. In terms of our mental and emotional health, actually, that isn't great. And so a lot of people, um, you know, with maybe no faith, will say, do you know what? Actually, that's not really it. You know, just kind of endless one-night stands and sleeping around. That's probably not great. Actually, what you need is a bit, you need commitment. At least have some commitment towards that person. Actually, I'm you know, at least only seeing that person. Um, because, you know, there is there's, you know, this huge sexual revolution and huge sexual freedom. It's not necessarily good for us. And people outside the church are kind of realising that too. Um, so that would be, you know, so on the one level you've got, well, there's just consent. So, well, maybe that's not quite good enough. A little bit better is we'll at least be committed. I think biblically, even that's not enough. I think what we've got to figure out is about covenant. Is that that's actually what's required. So again, if we look back at that Genesis account... We see the kind of the story, if you like, is that the, you know, what they say is that the man will leave his mother, father and mother, right? So leaves the family that he grew up in, is united with his wife. You know, the fact that it specifically talks about wife, I'm like, I think that's talking about a marriage of some sort. And now, what, now, what that looks like in terms of, like, just so you know, like the Church of England order of marriage, like that's, like that's how we do it here in a Christian context. But... That, that wouldn't be how they'd have done it back then. But there is something in terms of, okay, leave your father and mother, hold fast to, be united with. That word, united with, means hold fast, cling to, cleave to. So, so you get that phrase, leave and cleave, right? You leave your mother and father, you cleave to your wife, who you become married to, and the two become one flesh. So there's these sort of three parts to it. And Jesus, when he's, when he's using that, he, he adds to that, what God has joined, let no one separate. And he specifically says, they're no longer two, but they're one. So essentially, it's actually, this is what that is painting a picture of, is it's a covenant relationship, which is more than just, I'm committed to you. Actually, a covenant is a, is a lifelong binding agreement. It's literally that, so Phil and I are bound to one another. Right? Actually, there's that complete joining, complete connection, and it is lifelong. Part of which, in a marriage relationship, would be the sex relationship, which kind of enforces and strengthens that one flesh. Um, but it, that's more than just commitment, right? It's covenant, which I think this Genesis is painting the picture of, listen, it's a covenant relationship 
which is the right and safe and proper and protective relationship in order for sexual intimacy. Let me, let's dive into 1 Corinthians 6. When Paul is, um, Paul is talking to the church about sexual immorality, um, and he kind of, he, he uses what is in speech marks. It's probably a kind of a quote that was, it was a kind of a, a, a phrase people liked at the time, which is basically, I have the right to do anything, is what he says. He's quoting them, he's saying, you say, I've got the right to do anything. And his response is, yeah, you do, but not everything is beneficial. Um, and his argument is he's stressing the point of sexual intimacy, sexual activity with, a, with anybody else actually creates this deep and lasting connection. So he reiterates, he uses again this one flesh idea that we see in Genesis 2. So in verse 16, and it specifically, it's, it sounds like it's men in the church are sleeping with prostitutes. That's the specific immorality that he's going after. So he says, don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. This, so this is, this is where I, I think the Bible is, is pointing us, is that the depth of intimacy, the depth of joining that happens when two people have sex, I think requires the weight of promise and commitment that only comes in covenant in marriage. Right? It's not about a kind of a rule-keeping tick box. It's thinking about what is the... What is, I think that marriage relationship, that covenant, I am entirely bound to you. You know, the, the phrases that we use, you know, actually all that I am I give to you, everything I am I share with you. Like that complete commitment to another person, that is the safe place. I think it's that. I'm going to say again, the depth of intimacy and joining, you're joined to another person that happens when you sleep with them, actually really requires the weight of promise that only comes in covenant. And that is different to a commitment, right? So when you get married, it's not just a legal document that I sign in order to kind of fulfill the rules of the UK. Like, we do do that because we respect the laws of the land, but actually what happens, the important bit of a marriage is when, you know, husband and wife look at each other in the eye and they make big, I mean, if you've, like, really listened to a marriage, they are big promises that they make. Right? They're really big promises. And it's, that is a covenant agreement, total heart and soul forever commitment to one another that you make with your spouse before God. And in that context, I think that is the only context which is strong enough for the weight of sexual intimacy, for that complete joining and the two becoming one flesh. Does that make sense? The problem I think comes is, is actually is that when you, you know, we kind of maybe have these one flesh connection by having sex with somebody without the depth of commitment that comes from covenant. Um, and I think we need to understand, not just, well, point me to a verse to tell me the rules, Sarah, but actually, if we can understand the idea of covenant and the understanding of one flesh, then actually, the biblical command to flee sexual immorality actually makes more sense, because it's in the context of, actually, that's what's good for me. Um, and so I would, you know, I would think, you know, with that understanding of covenant and one flesh, I think that would include, you know, so the biblical command, flee sexual immorality, I think that would include sexual activity outside of marriage. Paul goes on um, in 1 Corinthians 6, let's read from verse 18, which is where he uses this phrase. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the reason, you know, his explanation to the early church is, listen, you've got, to, you've got to understand, if you sleep with someone else, you are one flesh with them. So in this context, the problem wasn't that they were 
sleeping with a prostitute. The problem was they were sleeping with someone who wasn't their wife. That was the issue. Because like, actually you're making these one flesh commitments, these joining relationships with someone you're not in a covenant relationship with. He's like, so you can say everything's beneficial, everything's permissible, but he'd be like, but it's not beneficial because that isn't how God has ordained it to be. And so his explanation for why it is this one flesh dynamic again, that's what he keeps coming back to. But the call he makes, the requirement he makes on that church, which I think is the requirement that God would make on us, is yes, let's understand God's heart, Let's try and figure out covenant and actually understand the weight of that. Let's understand that sex isn't just a physical act. You know, it's emotional, it's spiritual. It's actually a complete joining of two people. Therefore, actually, you, you want to have, you know, that needs to be in the context of covenant. So we want, yes, let's understand why in terms of God's design and God's heart. But the other thing that Paul makes very clear is, listen, I'm calling you to discipleship because this is the bottom line. You are not your own. You know, and I want us to understand, you know, and it's good to argue the point in terms of, listen, everything that God puts as a restriction, as a boundary, is absolutely because he's good and his intentions towards us are good. Right, that absolutely is. But I want us to be really careful. We don't just paint the picture of actually, you know, we, we live a right life because it's good for me. I live a good life because I'm committed to be a disciple and my life isn't my own. Right, and we, I think sometimes in, in the Western church, we need to be better at that call to discipleship. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul kind of, he kind of like explains the reason why. Hey, listen, understand about one flesh. Understand that you're joining yourself with someone you're not in covenant relationship. It's not good for you. It's not good for them. But then he comes with the hammer blow. Your life is not your own. You're called to be a disciple, right? And that is for all of us, married or single. Actually, that charge to flee from sexual immorality, which includes sexual activity outside of marriage. But let's not pretend that you can't be sexually immoral when you are married, right? This is the bar for all of us, is that we flee it. And the reason why is because our lives aren't our own. Actually, there is a call to costly discipleship. And so we have to understand that this is a massive cultural clash, right? Because we could say, like the, I suppose, like the Corinthian church were doing, well, I can do anything, all things are permissible. And like in our culture, it's like, sure, you can, right? Legally, culturally, yes, you can. You can watch pornography every day of your life. You can have sex with whoever you want as long as you're over 16, whether you're married to them or not, whether you're in any way committed to them or not. Yeah, you can. And, abs- and on the one hand, is that beneficial? No, I absolutely don't think it is. But for us as believers, is that acceptable? No, it's not, because my life isn't my own and nor is yours. So as disciples of Jesus, if that's who you are this morning, if you're someone who said, yeah, I want to follow you, Jesus, if that's who you are, then those things actually aren't an option for us anymore. Even when it's costly, even when it's sacrificial, even when it doesn't make sense and it's like this cultural clash, actually, your life is not your own and we need to glorify our God with our body. That makes sense? So here's the thing, what now? I think I was listening to some John Tyson teaching um, and, and he, he said this, and there are two failing messages, one from the church and one from the world. And I think he's dead right. In the church, the, the failing message is that there's, here's the moral standard, here are the rules, not necessarily understanding why, but here are the rules. So there's a moral standard and willpower, grit your teeth, and that's going to equal holiness, right? I, don't, I mean, if you're anything like me, I'm like, that doesn't actually work, Right? Moral standard and willpower equals holiness. That's not. That is a failing message. The world will say desire plus consent equals freedom. If you want it, and so do they do, knock yourselves out. Go for it. There's, that's ultimate freedom. But again, even I think the world and society is realizing, mm, actually, that's not super healthy and it's not super helpful. It's not maybe working out quite as we thought. 
So those two messages, I think, are failing. They're not, like, they're, we're not winning with those messages. I think the message we need to hear is grace. And so I wonder if, you know, maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, okay, well, if, that's, if that is what the Bible is painting is as, a, as a God's standard, that would be a position for marriage, for sex, what if that feels impossible? You might be sitting there thinking, that just feels impossible. That feels impossible to live in. It feels impossible to live out. It can't be. Um, maybe you're sitting there this morning thinking, okay, maybe, but that isn't how I've lived up to now. Maybe that isn't actually the standard I've lived according to. Now what? And then what if you're single and you're like, do you know what, frankly, all this talk of marriage and sex is really painful. It feels really disappointing. It feels really difficult. What, what if that's where you find yourself this morning? Um, listen, the message we need to hear is, is understanding about grace, abundant grace. And I, I want to remind us, one of the things we looked at in the first week is we've got to differentiate between our status and the standard. This is two things. So our status is the same as every other single human being on the planet, is that we were made, every single one of us, in the image of God, deeply loved, deeply valued, and intentionally created to bear his image, all of us, every person on the planet, regardless of faith or none. But for us as Christians, actually, there's a, there's a new status, there's almost like another status that we have, actually, at the point of salvation, is that we become new creations. Actually, we're accepted as sons and daughters. Actually, if we've come to Jesus and, and kind of repented of our sins and asked him to come into our lives, then actually... We are brand, brand new. And it says in Colossians that we can stand before him holy and blameless without a single fault. Like that is, the, that is the status that has been afforded to us. Does that make sense? So there's the status of us as image bearers. That's all of humanity. There's our status as sons and daughters, not because we have kept the standard, but because of the work of Jesus. So we have to understand, it's not that you are given the status of a loved sons and daughter because you have always kept the standard. It's that Jesus perfectly and fully met that standard in order that you and I then don't need to. And again, listen, that is not an excuse for Jesus did it, I can do what I like, right? Grace is not this get out for lawless living, can I knees up, do what you like? That isn't it. But we've got to keep those two things separate. So at the times when we're like, do you know what? I haven't met that standard. And maybe in, in terms of relationships and sex, like, do you know what? Actually, at points, I've missed the standard. And if there's anyone in this room says says, that's not me, I think you're lying. Right? In thought, in word, in deed, in what we've watched, what we've heard. Like at some point, all of us have missed that standard. But listen, that thing doesn't change your status because your status is given by grace. But grace also forgives us, cleanses us. And actually, it's like it resets the standard. It's this big reset button that says, okay, Sarah, you can go again. Yes, you missed that standard. 1 John 1 is you know, it's abundantly clear. If we confess our sins, God is faithful to do two things, and we so often stop halfway. He's faithful to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think so often we kind of, ex we believe that we're forgiven, but we still don't feel actually like we're clean from it. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm forgiven, but I'm still mucky. That's not it. That's just not what the Bible says. So we have to understand that actually grace comes and resets that standard completely. And it covers all sin. Um, and listen, Paul does say, he does make this point, doesn't he? In, in 1 Corinthians 6, we read that actually, that sexual sin, he, he sort of does say it's a bit different. Um, and and I, I, wanna, I think it's, a, it's an important bit to be aware of, but we have to handle that carefully because we can hear it wrong if we think, well, sexual sin is a, 
you know, particularly bad category of sin, and it's actually much harder for God to forgive. Like, that's not it at all. I think it's that the effects of sexual sin, because of this understanding of actually missing covenant and the idea of joining and that one flesh dynamic, actually is the effects on me are, are, are more marked maybe than other sorts of sin. But it is not that it's any harder for God to forgive. It's not like, you know, when you kind of, I know you're getting your car insurance and there's, you know, there's a whole load of small print and, you know, we come to Jesus and there's, okay, there's this area of sexual sin. He's like, Ooh, sorry, that one's not covered. If you read the small print, like that, that's not it. Like it's all, all, all covered. You know, I think we come, but for some reason, so I want you to be really careful. If, if there's anything in your mind, it's like, yeah, but there's this thing, which is just too big. God can't forgive that, or he can forgive me, but I'm never going to be clean from it. I'm never going to be free from it. I you know, feel still that that's on me. Like, we, you're, you're not understanding or, and receiving the fullness of grace that is available to you. Like There is no small print. It is all covered. But, and all we need to do sometimes is actually just uncover it before the Lord and say, here it is, I'm sorry, and we'll find actually it's covered. That's one part of grace. And, you know, and, it, and, and I know it's tough because sometimes these feel like big things and big issues. But let me read you a bit from Romans 5. This is the Phillips translation. It says this. Now we find that the law keeps slipping into the picture to point the vast extent of sin. You know, that may be what's happened this morning. We're like, wow, dang, God's got really clear marks for, for marriage and sexuality. And oh my goodness, his, his, his law, his word, his way is pointing out where I've missed it, Right? We find that the law keeps slipping into the picture to point the vast extent of sin. Yet, though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God his grace is wider and deeper still. The whole outlook changes. Sin used to be the master of men and in the end handed them over to death. Now grace is the ruling factor with righteousness as its purpose and its end, the bringing of men into eternal life of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is good news. Right when sin, you know, any, you know, maybe this morning it is, it's sexual sin, it's relationship muddle, that you're like, this looks like a big, wide, deep mess. Here's the thing, grace is wider and deeper still. It's like we're kind of almost like playing a game of cards with Jesus and we keep saying, oh yeah, but I also did this. It's like he just holds all the aces. Like any card you put down, he's like, here's the ace card and it's grace. It's like, yep, it's covered, it's covered. However wide, however deep, however long ago, it's covered. His grace is wider and deeper still. And here's the other thing. The thing we've got to understand about grace is it's not, it is enough to forgive and cleanse, reset the standard and, and restore us fully. But it also is what empowers us to live according to God's standard, to live according to his way. Otherwise, it's like we feel like we kind of just desperately struggle. Oh, we messed up. And grace picks us up and dusts us down and we go again and then we mess up again. And yes, grace does that. But the Bible's really clear that actually grace empowers us to live a different way. So it's not just constantly tripping over the same things. Titus 2, 11, 12 says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, gives us the status of forgiven, cleansed, loved, sons and daughters. That status is given to you. But verse 12 is really important. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Right? We need to understand, listen, in this present age, living an upright, self-controlled, godly life in the area of sex and relationships is really challenging because actually I think the standard that God calls us to is massively different from what the world would expect and celebrate and encourage us into. It's really different and so it's really difficult. 
which is why we've got to talk about these things. We've got to walk with one another out of sin into freedom, out of shame into freedom, and actually know that grace is what's going to empower you to live according to God's right way. It's not that there's this requirement, those are the rules, just keep them. There is a grace that's afforded to us to say, listen, this is the way of eternal life. And it's not just, that's not just, this is the way to get to heaven. This is the way to receive and live in and experience the abundant goodness of God right here and right now. And that might mean going without sex, which the world will say, are you kidding? But, but that's, like, that's eternal life. That is everlasting, flourishing, free life because that's the word of the Lord over us. So we've got, we've got to work really hard at figuring these things out. But I, I want to really encourage you, wherever you find yourself this morning, there is grace. So as much as God has a position, God also has a posture, which is unendingly leaning towards us in grace, always, consistently. So yes, I, want to, I, want to, I know what his position is. I want to figure out what mine is. But honestly, I think posture is so much more important. His posture towards us is always leaning in and drawing us into something better. So do you stand? We're going to pray for one another. I, would, I just want to encourage, actually, all of us to brave ourselves. Because, you know, we're... We've all got some work to do. We've all got some stuff to, to address. We've all got some adjustments to make. Um, and we're all in need of God's grace. Um, so if, you know, maybe place a hand on your heart, maybe hold your hands out. Maybe if that feels comfortable, if that feels like something in terms of like just engaging and focusing on the Lord. Um, and I want to encourage you just to lean in and ask for and receive the grace that you need this morning. Whatever that looks like for you, there's grace. So Holy Spirit, would you come and meet with us? Thank you, Jesus, that when, when sin seems so wide and so deep, thank you, God, that your grace is wider and deeper still. Thank you that it is all covered. So maybe there's some of you who's like, do you know what? There's stuff that actually I've, I've done, I've watched, I've said, I've listened to, that actually that's not God's standard. I just want to encourage you, just say, God, I'm sorry. Just, you don't have to say it out loud, but just uncover it before him and know that it's covered. Just bring it to him. Tell him that you're sorry and receive his grace. Yeah, God, we, just, we trust you that your grace is sufficient and we trust you that your grace is abundant. It says in Romans 5, um, how much more will those reign in life through the abundance of grace in our Lord Jesus? It's not just grit your teeth, clench your fists, hang in there, you might just make it. There is an abundance of grace that enables us to reign in life in the area of sex and relationships as much as any other area of our life. So Father God, I ask just, would you come and extend grace to us? I just speak forgiveness and cleansing over those people who've come and brought stuff to you this morning. Jesus, would you just wash over them, ask that they would know that they know that they know that they are forgiven and they are washed clean. 
And God, would you give to each and every single one of us, God, we acknowledge we need your grace. We want to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. God, we want to, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're old, young, male, female, whether we would describe ourselves as straight or gay, God, we want to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives according to your standard, but we need your grace. So God, we, yeah, I ask that you come and just yeah, extend grace to each one of us this morning. and We receive your grace again. Thank you, God, that your posture towards us is unchanging. Your nature is always to have mercy. That you're slow to anger, you're rich in love, you're abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. You never, ever change your posture. You're always leaning in and reaching out with grace and mercy. And God, so we want our posture to reflect that. Lord, we want to lean into you and receive that from you. But God, we want, to, we want to lean out as well. God, we want to lean towards a world that's trying to figure out these things. And we want our posture to match your posture. God, we want to be loving and kind and gracious and merciful. But God, we want, our, we want to walk with you. We want to live like you. And we ask that you'd help us. In your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. If you're on our prayer team, I'd love if you come make yourself available.